Well, I don't know what your car rides are like on your way to church in the mornings. Uh, ours don't always look exactly the same, but maybe they're, they're more or less the, the same on any given week. So on our car ride on the way here, maybe we'll listen to some worship music to kind of get our, ourselves and our family kind of in the uh, geared up for, for our gathered worship service together. Uh, maybe sometimes Kim and I will, will chat and talk about uh, some of the goings on of the weekend. Maybe sometimes we're uh, discipling our kids in some area of obedience. You know, hey, you remember last week when you ducked under the pew and popped up like a meerkat somewhere else? Like, don't do that this week. You know, so those are the conversations, uh, maybe more or less the same conversations that you're having on your way to church. But regardless, the conversations that we're having here are not like some of the conversations we had to have on the way to church when we lived in Shanghai the last six years. On several occasions on our way to church in China, we had some intel that made us have a very different conversation with our kids uh, as we're making our way together with God's people. Girls, you, you remember that not everybody loves Jesus, right? Well, and you know that some of those people who don't love Jesus want to keep Christians from gathering to worship together. You remember that, right? Well, just so you know, some of those people may be at our church this morning. And we want you to know that no matter what happens, that you can trust God. And no matter what happens, mommy and daddy will come find you. So trust God and, and stay calm. And if the police take mommy and daddy away to have a conversation today, we, we want you to go home with Mr. Doug and Miss Tracy. We've already talked to them about it. And if the police take Mr. Doug and Miss Tracy away, we, we want you to go home with Miss Carly. We don't think the police are going to want to talk to her, and we've already talked to her as well. You can go home with her, and, and we'll come and get you as soon as we can. Now, question. Do you think those instances and those conversations are helpful or are harmful for my kids' potential faith? Do you think that those conversations and those instances are hurtful or are helpful for mine and Kim's faith? Well, if you answered that you think those situations are helpful, you're right. <laughs> And you're set up really, really well to consider our text in James chapter 1 this morning. Where we will see not just how trials work for the benefit of others, but also see how trials may be used in your life and for the health of your faith as well. If you answered that question in the negative, that you maybe think that those situations are hurtful or harmful for our faith, well, I love you. And you're also in a great place to enter into James chapter 1 this morning because James is about to rock your world with what he says, God says, about trials in our lives. James chapter 1, starting a new series this morning in the book of James. I believe in the, the Pew Bible that you have in front of you is uh, on page 1011. Page 1011 in your Pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to, to just take that Bible with you today as our free gift to you so that you may read God's Word and get to know Him. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And here's what we're going to see in these first 11 verses. We're going to be looking at the, the whole chapter, the first chapter of James over the next three weeks. But in these first 11 verses, here's what I want to argue. We must fight for a God-centered perspective, even in, and then if you're taking notes, I want you to scratch out even in and put especially in. So we must fight for a God-centered perspective, even in, scratch that out, no, especially in our trials. We must fight for a God-centered perspective, especially, not just even in our trials, but especially in our trials. James 1, verses 1 through 11, uh, in this text, we're going to see God's message and, and ha having us have this perspective, uh, this God-centered perspective in our trials. God wants his, uh, to, to his people in pain, he's going to give four things. To his people in pain, he's going to give four things. To his people in pain, God gives his word. 
to his people in pain, God gives maturity. To his people in pain, God gives wisdom. And to his people in pain, God gives humility. In these first 11 verses, four things that God gives to his people in times of trial so that we may have that God-centered perspective that we're talking about. God gives his word, God gives maturity, God gives wisdom, and God gives humility. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll read the text. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. To his people in pain, first God gives his word. And beginning with this point, I have in mind here both the the entire book of James generally as well as what we see by way of that in verse 1 specifically. So James chapter 1, verse 1 begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Now, as in most of the New Testament letters that we have, we have both the the author of the letter identified in the the, the greeting in the very beginning of the book, and we also have the, the recipients, the people who are receiving the letter, the audience, they're identified at the beginning of this letter as well. So we see here that this book is written by James, identified here, self-identified as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is amazing here is something James actually fails to mention. James leaves one just little tiny small fact about who he is out of his greeting. James, a servant of God. Oh yeah, by the way, I'm also the brother of Jesus. James leaves that part out of his little biographical information at the beginning. Just a small thing that might be of concern for people who are receiving this. He's James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is also Jesus' brother. And so if you'll remember in Mark chapter 3, some people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, your, your, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. James is one of those brothers. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, and the people that, that are rejecting him at Nazareth says, wait, wait, is this, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't, isn't this the, the, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? In Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is describing a trip that he took to Jerusalem. And he says, I, I saw none of the apostles there except for James, the brother of Jesus. Or James, the Lord's brother, Paul says in Galatians 1, 19. So that is the author of this book of James. The author of this letter is James, the brother of Jesus. Also known in the first century as James the Just. Well, James doesn't lean into that part of his biography at all, does he? He's James, a servant. A servant doesn't come in his own name or with his own agenda or with his own message. No, he comes in the name of, with the agenda of, with the message of the king. That's James. That's James' authority. So James says, here's a letter. You you want to know why you should read it? Because Jesus is king and I am his servant. But James, aren't you also his brother? Immaterial. 
irrelevant. I am a servant. Jesus is king. Here's what he has to say. Now, let's just pause here for just a quick point of application for all of us. For those of us who are Christians, we are all servants of the king. That's your authority as well. That's your identity as well. That's your diploma on the wall. That's your undiversified portfolio. That's who you are likewise. You are likewise a servant of the king. That's your identity, your authority, just as it is James here. And so let me just say, let that embolden you to teach his word with others. Let that embolden you to bring his comfort to other people. Let that embolden you to proclaim the good news to others. Well, who am I? I don't have any degrees. I'm not connected the way that other people are. I don't have a platform. Doesn't matter. You're a servant of King Jesus. We all are. And you have the very word of God. When people are truly in need, they aren't impressed with your physical relationships, but with your spiritual relationship. And that's what James is pointing out here. I'm James, sidestep the brother of the Lord stuff for a second. I am James, a servant of King Jesus. And friends, that's your authority as well. That's why he introduces himself this way. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit raise up a, a servant to deliver his word to people who need it. Well, to, to whom does he write? It's also in verse 1. It says there to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 12 tribes uh, uh, clues us in that this is a Jewish audience. And uh, 12 tribes in the dispersion clues us into the fact that they are outside of their homeland. They're outside of their home city, their home country. So we know that James was the brother of Jesus, but that's not all that we know. We know that James was there for the crucifixion. And then after Jesus rose again, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. And then he appeared to James and then to the rest of the apostles. So James was there at the crucifixion. He was one of the people that Jesus came and saw in that, that period of time between his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, we know that James then actually stays in Jerusalem after the ascension, and, and he's a part of, of that group early on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, who are up praying in the upper room. James is there praying in the upper room in Acts 1.14 in Jerusalem, and he becomes a leader of the church at Jerusalem. Paul tells the Galatians that, that not only, I mentioned earlier how uh, Paul said when he, he wrote to the Galatians that when he went to Jerusalem, he, he saw uh, none of the other apostles except for James, the brother of Jesus. But that's not all that Paul says in Galatians. Galatians 2 verse 9, Paul says that James is among the, the pillars of the church there in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 15 where we see what is known as the Jerusalem Council take place. James is, is, is kind of presiding over that as, 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 a, as a leader or, or kind, of a, um, kind of a chairman of the Jerusalem Council. And so, so James, we know that, that he stayed and he was the leader, uh, one of the leaders, if not kind of the main leader of the church in Jerusalem in the first century. But this church in Jerusalem experiences some very hard times. There, there was persecution that these Jewish Christians, uh, uh, some sort of persecution that caused them to be scattered. That this letter is quite early, if not the earliest epistle that we have, then, then uh, one of the top two earliest epistles that we have. And so the scattering that James is talking about here, it could be the, the same scattering that we see in Acts chapter 11 from the, the stoning of Stephen, kind of the first martyr, and it says that the church was scattered. That could be what's in reference here. Or it could be just a, another scattering that happens among the people of God as they keep receiving persecution from Roman authorities in the first century. And so we do know that, that it could be this later crackdown or the stoning of Stephen. We don't know exactly, but we do know that God moves his servant to bring his word to a people who are living outside of their true homeland because of pressure and trials and persecution and sufferings and pains. And so God moves James, his servant, to bring a word to them. People who need some teaching on and some reminders about and some encouragement regarding their pains, regarding their temptations that they have towards worldliness when the heat is turned up in their lives, 
reminders of what it looks like to live the Christian life out holistically, not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word, not just having faith, but also having works. James is writing this letter to encourage this people that when the heat is turned up, we, we, we can tend to kind of shrink back from having a holistic faith that is walking with God in sincerity and, and uh, kind of a genuine way. And so God raises up his servant to bring an encouraging word to these people in pain of what it looks like to live out the Christian life in all of life in every way and to not shrink back in the face of trials and persecution. God raises up this servant to bring his word. To his people in pain, God gives his word. And praise God for us, and we'll, we'll continue to uh, think about and reflect on our own pains and trials and, and persecutions and sufferings, but we have the same thing, that God, we not only have the book of James, but we have the rest of God's holy word of his scriptures that he does not leave us alone in our pain with no perspective and with, with no idea of, of the, the glories of the life to come. He, he, he doesn't leave us alone with, with nothing. God, to his people in pain who are facing persecution and trial and pressure, he gives his word. He gave it to this, these Jewish Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem through his servant James, and he gives it to you and me that we might read it and know what do we do in this world racked with sin and difficulty and hardship. God says, I have a word. I've, I've raised up many servants to deliver that to you. So to his people in pain, God gives his word. Secondly, to his people in pain, God gives maturity. To his people in pain, God gives maturity. We're going to spend the most time on this point of the four that we're looking at this morning. So to his people in pain, God gives his word. Secondly, to his people in pain, God gives maturity. Look again at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. By the way, that word, my brothers, that's going to appear 16 times in these five chapters in the book of James. So again, God is comforting his people with his word, but he's also comforting them with, with this idea of brotherhood and with this idea that, 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 that um, the brothers and sisters, the, the family, that he is encouraging them that, that this is, we are all in Christ if we've repented and trusted in him. James, is, he's, he's, with, he's with these Christians in the dispersion. So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we already saw, these Christians are scattered, and they were experiencing trials, he says, trials of various kinds. Now from the rest of the letter, as we go through this series, we'll see what some of these trials were. Some of these trials were economic Economic injustice, we'll see in chapter 5 that there were wealthy landowners who were taking advantage of their tenants and, and cheating laborers. There, there's physical sickness. We see calling for the elders to pray in James chapter 5, verse 14. There's various uh, temptations and persecutions throughout. We'll see that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The trials that they face are, are various. They face some big ones. They face some small ones. They face trials that, that were more of the everyday routine variety. And they face trials that were more of the extreme unique variety. And so he writes and he says, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Friends, take this as an encouragement that God sees your trials, all of them. Your, your various trials. God sees all of them, the, the big ones, the small ones. This is helpful for us because, because we, we, it allows us to identify with their struggle. Trials are trials. Pains are pains. Just because you're not at risk of the most possible uh, imaginable atrocity doesn't mean that there aren't pressure points in your life. Just because you didn't lose as much money as the hedge fund guys did last week doesn't mean that your financial struggles are insignificant. Just because you don't get extremely sick with a virus doesn't mean that a forced quarantine isn't difficult. We all face various trials and God sees every single one of them. The point? 
Well, the point isn't, well, we all get to whine and complain then. That's not, that's not the point. That's not the take home. We, well, we all get to, to mope and throw a fit because of all the various trials that we face. No, what's it say? Look at verse 2. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. We face various trials. God sees them all. The point is that we count all of them as joy. We are all, in all of our varied trials and discomforts and injustices, we are all called to fight for joy in the midst of them. Now, think about this command. We have this command precisely because we aren't prone to think about our trials in this way. That's why it's commanded of us. It's not natural, it's supernatural. Thomas Manton is a 17th century English Puritan commenting on the book of James. He writes this. He says, though sense will not find it so, yet spiritual judgment must so esteem it. So when we face trials and we face pushback, we face persecution, though sense, our normal sense, the normal way that we perceive things, though sense will not find it so, yet in spiritual judgment, we must so esteem it. Normal sense, normal, just the way that we think about things is not going to look at trials and say, man, that's a joy. But in spiritual judgment, we must so esteem it. Our natural reaction to trials in our lives will be to count it all inconvenience, to count it all divine displeasure, to count it all karma. James says, count it all joy my brothers. How can he say that? How can he say such a thing? Well, it's because he's not saying that the trials themselves are good, but what God is working through the trials is what is good. And so this isn't a way to take this, this text and say that we need to go seek difficulty in our lives and try to, try to uh, uh, heap uh, pain and, and those kinds of things on because that's it. No, Pain is bad. Sin is bad. Diseases are bad. Cancer is bad. But these things are bad. We're not to look at those and be like, wow, those things are great. No, it's not the trial that we are to have that, that, that is joyful. It's what God, or not, not the pain uh, that is joyful, but it is what God is working through that. The reason that James can say this is that because he knows there's a purpose to trials. Look at the text again in verse 2. First of all, his, his word choice of trials at all is telling. He could have said something else. He could have said, count it all joy when, when some affliction is happening to you. Count it all joy when, when uh, something, uh, some evil is a result of living in a fallen world is coming upon you. But no, he uses the word trial. A trial implies that there's purpose to it. And this is what he fleshes out in verse 3. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says, you guys know that. You've seen it. And we know it as well, don't we? You know that, the, that testing produces steadfastness. Any, any, anybody in here who has developed any kind of skill or acquired any kind of a skill knows that that's the case. Anybody who has ever excelled in athletics, anybody who has ever learned a musical instrument, anybody who has gone through military training, whatever field that you're in that you get a paycheck for, none of that was a cakewalk. It was blood and sweat and tears and time and sleepless nights. All of that went into building something and growing something and maturing you. There's blood and sweat and pain and tears. They molded you and produced endurance in you. This is what God is doing through your trials as well. And that word steadfastness there in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your face produces steadfastness. The Greek word there could also be, be translated as endurance. You could translate that either way. God is doing something in your trials. It's not random and chaotic, but rather purposeful and useful. And it produces in us endurance. Through the difficulties and the pains, God is teaching you to endure. He is training you to keep your eyes on him and remain faithful. But it's not just endurance for endurance sake. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
The, the, the steadfastness and endurance that trials produce are themselves working toward your perfection and your completion, your maturity, your growth in Christ's likeness, your sanctification. How does that happen? How does this process work? Well, Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 5. You could write Romans 5 right here beside James chapter 1. Paul is saying something very, very similar in Romans chapter 5. But listen to how Paul describes the process in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Sounds similar, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see Paul's logic here. He says that whenever we have sufferings, whenever we have trials, what happens through those is that those produce endurance. We, if we are truly in Christ, if we truly know Jesus, when we have trials and pain and the heat is turned up in our lives, we will remain steadfast. We endure. A fake Christian will do a lot of things, but he won't suffer for Jesus. As soon as that suffering comes, it's like, man, I'm out. This is too much. This is asking too much. The cost of discipleship is too high. I'm out. A fake Christian will do a lot of things, but he won't suffer. And so what we see is that whenever trials befall us, when we go through hard times, when we go through difficulties, the Christian remains steadfast. The Christian endures. And so Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance and our endurance produces character. So whenever we are enduring through trials, whenever we are making it our way through things that are hard, we look at that and we say, we, we might even surprise ourselves. We're like, oh my goodness, look at that character. <laughs> look at that. Oh, I am a Christian. Look at that. I, I, did, I did stay. I, I didn't die. Like I, I, I remained through it. I'm, I'm, I'm staying here and I'm clinging to Jesus and that's developing character. And I see things about, his, about how, who, who he is and about how his promises and his word are true. And that's fortifying me and that's building me up. The suffering led to the endurance, which produced character in your life. And when you see that character, what does Paul say next? That leads to hope. That leads to hope because you look and you say, I can do this. I can keep doing this. God sustains me. He gives me real grace and real time to go through whatever it is that he's calling me into. He's there and, and I can cling to him and I can remain steadfast and it builds character. And friends, that gives me great hope knowing that God is good and Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. And, and that trains us to go through that process in our Christian life, with, whether it's losing your keys in the morning or whether it's you get COVID, whatever it is, the, the little trials, the big trials, whatever it is, is teaching us to, to, to not turn away, to not abandon, to, to remain steadfast in the midst of trials and to let those, that, that steadfastness have its proper work in our lives. And that takes us all the way to glory as we endure and abide in Jesus. Trials give us the opportunity to endure. Enduring produces character. That character gives us great hope. So do you see why James could say, listen, guys, I know you're scattered. I know you're dispersed. I know you're away from your home. I know there's been persecution. I know Stephen died. I know Jesus ascended. I know all this kind of stuff happened in your life. But friends, count it all joy when you go through those trials because listen, God is doing something in you through it. So you see what James is arguing here. But let's specifically look at those two commands that he gives. In verses two through four, count it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect. Those are both imperatives. Those are both commands. Count it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect. First, count it a little more on count it all joy. This doesn't mean, again, that we choose pain or claim that the negative effects of the fall are good. No, the way things are is not the way that they were meant to be. The way that sin infects all of us, the way that, that, that sin has affected our world is not the way, that may, the, the, the way that things were meant to be. And so we rightly grieve over and have sorrow over pain and disease and natural disaster. We, we rightly have, have pain and sorrow and grief over those things. You should never take this verse, what we see in James chapter 1, as just this kind of blanket, calloused. You go to somebody who's facing something hard and say, well, count it all joy. That's what the Bible says. 
that's not, that's not the idea here. Our pains are hard. We rightly weep over things. That's what Jesus did in John chapter 11. Jesus goes and his friend dies and he sees Mary crying and, and he weeps with them. It is right to, to have tears. The effects of sin are heinous. Again, so while we don't count the trial itself good, we choose joy knowing that God is doing something in us through it. And so that's why he can command, count it all joy, my brothers. Count your trials as joy. Again, Thomas Manton, the 17th century Puritan commentator on, on James, he, he says, in our consideration lies our misery or our comfort. In our consideration lies our misery or our comfort. That's something you can do in the midst of trials when everything's swirling around you and everything seems so out of control and it feels like we have no control in this. James says you do have control in this. You can choose joy because you know that God is working in you through this. You can choose it. And again, that doesn't mean that we have to figure out what God is doing to have the joy. I think we get hung up there sometimes. We're like, man, if I could just figure out the purpose of this, I could just figure out what God is up to. If he would just tell me why he's taking me through this, then I would be able to. We might not know. We might not ever know. And that's not part of the argument here. James says, it doesn't say, well, if you can drill down into the mysterious mind of God, then you can have joy in your afflictions. He says, no, count it all joy in your various trials, whatever they may be. Choose joy. You know, since, since moving here in August, we've heard a, a lot of talk uh, about religious liberty in the United States, maybe striving to keep religious liberty, fears of losing religious liberty. Just, I'm just giving this as an example. Let me say this as plainly as I can. Religious liberty is a good thing. Religious liberty is a great thing. I would never personally pursue the loss of religious liberty or in any way enjoy the loss of religious liberty. But church, to the extent that it is lost, that will not spell the end of Christianity in the United States of America. Rather, what it will be is a trial through which God will test and mature and purify and prune his people. It will actually strengthen the church, not weaken it. That's why we can choose joy, even if we lose religious liberty. Again, I, I, I hope we don't. I, I don't pursue that. I don't desire it. I don't pray for it. But even if that happens... That would be a trial through which God would mature and grow and strengthen his church. That's why we can choose joy. Well, I don't believe that. Well, you better go ask the rest of Christianity on the planet because that is exactly what is happening to them. We can't both celebrate the persecuted church and then do every single thing we can to avoid any discomfort in our life. You can't have both of those things. We can't. It is through the trials and the pains and the suffering of the persecuted church around the world that God is developing the character and the maturity and the hope and the passion and the zeal that he's doing. That's what he's using to do it. We can't both, we can't have it both ways. We can't celebrate that and then turn and run and scream anytime we have any sort of pressure on our lives and discomfort or we don't like where our tax dollars are going. Again, an example, very real example of the way that God will use anything, even horrible things like that, to mature us and grow us. Friends, count it all joy when you face various trials in your life. The second command that he gives here is let steadfastness have its full effect. Verses, one through one, uh, verses three and four, let steadfastness have its full effect. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. Now it's interesting, the fact that he says that means that there are things we can do, actions we can take to see that trials uh, that, that God would desire to use to produce endurance in us toward the end goal of maturity, completion, perfection, sanctification. There are things that we can do and decisions we can make to, to kind of shortcut that. There are things that we can do to, to, to try to make sure that endurance doesn't have its full effect. 
God is saying, I'm, I'm allowing these trials in your life and I'm using them for your good and your maturity. But listen, listen, church, let endurance have its full effect. Meaning there's things you can do to not let it have its full effect. We can shortcut steadfastness. Oh, how? How? Doesn't spell it out here in the text. But if you just think, you ask yourself that question, some of the ways that we might shorten the, or tempted to shorten the need for endurance through trials, let me suggest three of them that I, I commonly am tempted towards, see it in others. We take the wrong medicine, we have the wrong timeline, and we have the wrong goals. We take the wrong medicine, we have the wrong timeline, we have the wrong goals. So first, we take the wrong medicine. What I mean by that is that in our pains, we tend to turn to ways of, of numbing ourselves through our pains. This is why we turn so quickly to substances or to entertainment or to inappropriate relationships when we're stressed or pressured. It's our way of medicating ourselves against the reality of a scary world. Let me laugh my way through it. Let me drink my way through it. Let me have my own uh, physical pleasure to get myself through it. Friends, that is, the, that, that is what, why James is saying here, guys, let endurance have its full effect. Don't take the wrong medicine. Don't shortcut steadfastness just to get out of it. Let God do his work in you through those trials. Secondly, we have the wrong timeline. We have the wrong timeline. We, we want pain to end now. We want pain to be over now. In fact, when we're facing difficulty and we go to others for counsel, that's what we often want. We just want the quickest way out, make the pressure end. So when we go to a counselor or a doctor or to a pastor, we just want to go and say, hey, give me the quickest way out of this thing. I want the pain to end right now. And praise God, sometimes he does. Sometimes he does provide something through a counselor or through a doctor, through a pastor, that will alleviate that pain and that pressure immediately. But he doesn't always do that. And if we, in our own counsel of others, if we, in our own ministry to others, take the approach of the goal is to, is to, is to get to relieve that immediately as, as soon as it happens, we may be not allowing endurance to have its full effect. We may be shortcutting steadfastness because God wants to allow the pressure to, to linger for a little bit. Ask Paul, who prayed to the Lord numerous times, take this away from me. And he said, no. No. Because I want you to know that my power is made perfect in weakness. So have that in your minds as you're going through various trials. Be careful to not shortcut what God may be doing by just trying to get out of it as quick as possible. Seek what is good, get good counsel from others, pursue health, spiritually, physically, mentally, all of those things. But realize that, that there may be, it may linger for a bit so that God may allow endurance to have its full effect. And that doesn't lessen his goodness. In fact, that's his goodness to you. The third way I think we sometimes shortcut endurance is we have the wrong goals. In our groanings, our goals are often not God's goals. We can count it all joy when God is our goal. That's what we can do. We can count our trials all joy when God is our goal. Often our goals are not God's goals, which is why we get frustrated. If we're going through trials, but, but we think our ultimate goal is, is our own success and business, but there's a trial in our life that is leading us away from success and business, we, we, we get frustrated because our goals are not God's goals. God's goals might not be your success, but your sanctification. God's goal isn't your fame, but your faith. God's goal isn't your happiness, but your holiness. And when we get those goals twisted in our minds, we get extremely frustrated when we face trials. And we end up shortcutting endurance and steadfastness. Friends, let steadfastness have its full effect. Count it all joy. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Well, how, how can we do all of this? How can, we, how, how can we consider trials as joy? How can we let steadfastness have its full effect? 
only Jesus. It's only Jesus. Jesus met trials of various kinds as well, and he endured for us. And the Bible says that, that in the Christ event is where we find proof of Jesus' love for us. The Bible says that, that in, in the Christ event, we have all the signs and wonders that we're ever going to have and that Jesus promises to give to us. Through the most intense trial, Jesus draws us near and gives us a, a, a picture of a better reality that is uh, coming, a coming glory, and gives us a context for all of our current temporal sufferings. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How can, we, how can we have the perspective that James is saying here only if we look at Jesus and say with Paul that the present sufferings we have don't even compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God is taking us there. He is preparing us for that day, for that city. Not just making things comfortable in this one. And he's using the discomfort we have now indeed to mature us until that day of perfection. I think most often, or very often, in our trials, we want to look at our trials and say, see, God doesn't love me. See, God doesn't, God doesn't see me. See, God, God doesn't care about me. How do I know? Because I'm going through this thing. I'm going through this thing. That's how I know that God doesn't love me or see me or care about me because I have this pain in my life. I'm going through this trial in my life. And God says, no, 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 no. This is how I am showing my love to you, by maturing you through this, by sustaining you through this. I'm maturing you by bringing hope into your life. There is a greater glory, and I'm using trials to, to create steadfastness and endurance in you for that day. John Piper is saying whenever uh, about in the book that he wrote on cancer, he says, cancer doesn't win if you die. Cancer wins if you stop cherishing Jesus. Tim Keller, I just heard an interview with Tim Keller the other day where he, he's talking about his own ex experience with cancer. And he says, people talk about me battling cancer. I'm not battling cancer. I'm battling my sin. That's what I'm, I'm not, like I get what people mean when I'm talking about fighting cancer. I'm not, I just want to be clear, I'm not fighting cancer. I'm fighting sin. Because that's my struggle. That's my struggle in this is to keep my eyes on Jesus, to keep clinging to Christ who suffered for me that I might live eternally. So I hope as you see this, when James says, count it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect. Jesus walked that very same road. It was for the joy set before him that he gave his life, that we might not only be saved, but filled with the spirit who would empower us and sustain us through anything that we face, indeed growing us through anything that we face so that we might be perfect and complete for eternity with Christ. So when you're going through hard things, God is giving certain things to you. He gives you his word, just like he gave these Jewish Christians who were dispersed. He gives his word. He gives his maturity. He gives us maturity in our lives through the trials. And then a little bit more briefly, the next couple of things he gives, he gives wisdom to us and he gives humility to us. God gives wisdom. Look at verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the, the key to understanding what James is doing in, in these verses in chapter 1 is to realize that, that he's not introducing a new kind of random topic. He, he was talking about trials, and now he's, he's, he's kind of switching to talk a, a little bit about, about prayer. That's not what's going on here. And the key to realizing that is to, is to look at the end of verse 4, 
that the full effect of trials is endurance and maturity and completion so that the Christian might be complete. And he says, lacking in nothing. And then verse five begins, if any of you lacks wisdom. So that's the connection. The idea of if God is, is working something through your trial so that you would lack nothing. If you do lack something, namely, if you lack wisdom, this is what you do. Let him ask God in faith, call out to God. So certainly we, we should always call out to God when we're in need of wisdom, but in context here, he's specifically talking about the wisdom needed to discern that the testing of our faith is being used as a gift from God. He's talking about the wisdom that we need to, to uh, experience trials and difficulties and say, I count that as all joy. That's the wisdom that he's specifically talking about here. That God is doing something to produce steadfastness and an endurance that will lead to growth and maturity and completeness. That kind of perspective is far easier said than done. That kind of reaction is not natural, but supernatural. That teaching is a hard word for us. One for which we must call out to God for wisdom if we fail to see our trials in such a light. And so Delray Baptist Church, if any of you during our exposition of verses two through four were thinking, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I see it that way. Well, James in love says, I knew you'd say that. He says, I knew there'd be some people who felt that way. And he commands you then to ask God for wisdom that you might see it in that way because it's true. This is the truth about trials. This is the truth about what God's doing to mature you. If you fail to understand that and comprehend that, if you're struggling with that, James said, I knew you'd be here. Ask God to make it so in your mind. Ask God for wisdom. That's the application. That's the application here in this part of the text. If you want some, something practical, something tangible, James says, here it is, pray. God, I'm failing to see how you're using this thing for my good. James says, pray. God, I'm failing to, to, to see why I continue to struggle with this. James says, pray and trust him. Ask him for wisdom to see it that way. And note, God will give wisdom, verse 5 says. James says, it's our generous God who will give it. He's not withholding. He's not vindictive. He doesn't enjoy watching you squirm. He's generous. And he's not only generous, but he gives without reproach. The Greek word there for, that's used for reproached means finding fault in a way that demeans the other person. You ever had somebody give you a gift, but they gave it with reproach? I remember one time I was raising support to go on a mission trip. I was in college or right after college, and, and there was this, uh, this guy that worked uh, with my, my mom at the real estate office that she worked at, and, and this was, I don't know, maybe my fourth or fifth mission trip, and so I, I'd come and I'd asked him for, uh, for, for more support, and he, 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 takes, uh, he, he writes a check uh, for $25, and he says, oh, you're still begging for money, huh? Well, are you ever going to stop begging for money? Here's some more money. And I was like, listen, bro, like, I, nah, you just keep, you keep your check. I don't, and he's like, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I was like, no, for real. Like, I, I'm not, he, he was giving to me with reproach. Uh, here's some money, but I, I'm going to kind of, you know, jab a little knife while I'm doing it. God isn't like that. God isn't like, oh, you're asking for wisdom again. <sighs> okay, I'll give it but when are you ever gonna grow up? That's not what God does. God gives generously without reproach. And so if you're going to him for the thousandth time saying, God, I still don't see why this is going on. God says, I'm going to keep giving you wisdom and I do it generously and I do it without reproach because I love you and because I care for you. He gives without demeaning or tearing down. He gives without reproach. Well, James gives one requirement here. He says to ask in faith. Realize that there, there are other explanations in Scripture for, 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 um, for praying and, and what that looks like. 1 John 5.14 says that the confidence we have before him is that we ask uh, according to his will and he hears us. So there's, there's other passages about prayer and, and how we may pray. And James is not trying to get to all of that here, but the one requirement he, asks, he talks about here is to, to ask in faith without doubting. Yeah, I think First John says we, we also are asking according to his will. So asking God for wisdom while doubting leads to, a, to an instability, a, a shiftiness, an ebb and a flow that is like the ocean waves tossed around, he says. We're asking him for something. We're not really sure that he's going to give it. 
that either he either can give it or that he wants to give it. So James says, we, we can't, if that's the way we're asking, we can't expect any sort of peace of mind or perspective on our trials. If we ask that God would give us wisdom and then we doubt that he can do that. So James says, trust God and call out to him and ask him. You know, one reason that this might be difficult for us, I think, is that we have so much wisdom in the various expertise that we have or, or our occupations or our areas of study that we can be tempted to go it alone when it comes to spiritual insight or perspective on our trials. Listen, some of you are absolutely brilliant with public policy, with defense, with cybersecurity, with law, with finance and education, sales, theology, that it can be tempting because we have so much wisdom in all these other areas of our lives that we can be tempted to be self-sufficient when it comes to this. And James said, don't be self-sufficient. Call out to God who gives wisdom that we might be stable. We do that through prayer, certainly. Part of our quest will take us to the pages of scripture and, and to the life of the church. In Ephesians 4, Paul actually also uses that imagery of being tossed around uh, like wave, uh, winds and waves. And he says that, that God has actually given uh, pastors and teachers and leaders in the church to equip you so that that doesn't happen, so that you're not tossed around. So if this is a need to, to, to see things, see your trials in this light, ask God in faith. He's a generous God who gives without reproach so that you won't be tossed around. And, and in your asking, also let that take you to his word to search for truth and to his church to, to help to build you up in your understanding of God's ways and his word and what he's doing. Verse eight, James add that, adds that such a person is double-minded. The Greek word there is di-sukos, two-souled. Two-souled, it's like the person has two souls or two psyches person is double-minded. Part of them wants to be devoted to God and trust God and follow God and live as a Christian. But at the same time, part of them disbelieves God and espouses certain truths about God and his character. But when the rubber meets the road, they don't really believe that he's good or that he's able. They are two-souled. Devotion to God is therefore divided. It's, it's split. It's, it's not complete. It's less than whole. This will come up again. He uses the same word, double-minded, daisukos. He uses that again in chapter four, verse eight. It's a theme in this letter that James is, is actually commending a wholeness to the Christian life whenever we face trials. Hearing and doing, love to all, not preferential love to some, faith and works, faith that doesn't uh, also try to have friendship with the world and so on. That's gonna be a theme that we're gonna see all the way through the book of James. So church, don't be divided. This will show itself in a million ways in your life, but one of them is your prayer life. Saying words to God that you don't really believe or don't trust that he's good to do. Pray that God would help you with your perspective on trials and help you go through trials in a right way, a way that chooses joy and lets endurance have its full effect. Pray for that wisdom and trust him. Finally, number four, God gives humility. So God gives his word, God gives maturity, God gives wisdom, and God gives humility. Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." The logic of the passage seems to flow in this way from a discussion of trials in verses two through four to the wisdom required to view trials in the way that James is promoting in verses five through eight to now what's he, what he's doing is he's actually addressing one of the main areas of trial that they have in their life. So have joy in your trials, first part. If you don't have joy and you fail to have that perspective, pray, call out to God to give that to you. And then to this, these uh, Christians that he knows, let me, let me turn the spotlight on an area that I know you guys are struggling and an area where you guys currently have trials. It's the issue of money. That's the logic of this passage. A major situation where their belief is tested is in the use of wealth. 
And so verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That means the, 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 the person uh, of, of humble means, the brother who is light on resources, uh, meager finances. And this lowly brother is meant to boast in his exaltation. This means that, that he or she is to boast in, in their rich status as a child of God. In our trials, specifically in the trial of poverty, God would have Christians boast not in themselves, but in him. Then James turns to the rich. Trials aren't alone attached to those who have meager wealth, but also to those who have much wealth. To the rich, verse 10, James says to boast in his humiliation. Meaning, as he spells out in the rest of verse 10 and through verse 11, he says, life is fleeting. All of your stuff will pass away. Your money and your power will fade. Trials have a leveling effect in the fact that they hit everyone. Wealth doesn't exempt anyone. Rather, it's an example of that. And trials are going to hit the person who doesn't have money and the person who has a lot of money. James is saying to these Christians, your faith will be tested by money. If you have little money, your faith will be tested by that. You'll be prone to see your identity as someone who is poor in earthly resources and all the difficulties and pains that that brings. But God wants to lift your sights from that. He wants to say, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you have to live on little because I'm producing endurance in you through it. It's a, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but if, you, if that's a tough pill to swallow for you, ask God to give wisdom to perceive it in this way and he will give wisdom to perceive it in that way. But you, lowly Christian, poor Christian, must boast in your exaltation, in your riches in Christ. That's what this text is saying. And, and then he turns to, to, to the other people, and if you have a lot of money, he says your faith will be tested by that as well. You'll be prone to put your identity in your stuff and have confidence in your earthly resources. But God likewise wants to lift your sights. He wants to say, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you struggle with all the things that wealth brings you. And it will bring its own temptations. It'll bring temptations toward greed. It'll bring temptations to amass more by taking advantage of others. It'll bring temptations to, to struggle, to think that the, the, the goodness of, of, of glory and the beauties of Jesus, to struggle to see that because you're quite content with the goodness of this life and the beauties of Benjamin's. He says, no, that, that, that there's going to be a temptation there along with the temptation that just comes with having money of overseeing people and having staff under you and of managing all the different things that you have to manage. That, that is difficult. Ask anybody with money if, if having money has eased all of their pains and all their difficulties and all their trials in life. And I, I imagine people will say no. Now, some of you will say, well, I'll take that trial. <laughs> Sign up for that one. But, but wealth brings struggle. It brings hardships. And so to, the, to those people, James says, count it all joy when you struggle with your station because I'm producing endurance in you through it. Don't believe me? Ask God and he will give you wisdom to see it that way as well. But you, rich Christian, you must boast in your humiliation because everything you have is going to fade away one day. Boast in that, not in your riches. This last section dealing with money, I think, is, is, is a kind of a, a great way to, to wrap up here. It's potentially helpful for us in two ways. First, it, it likewise prepares us for trials that come with wealth. The exact things that he is saying to these Christians are ways that we can map onto our lives to see how we might struggle if we're low on resources at the moment or if we're doing quite well on resources at the moment. That, that, that we can take this teaching on wealth and, and, and map it straight onto our lives and have some encouragement and some application. But secondly, James is giving an example, uh, or giving this example of money helps us to think through kind of the logic of this passage to use it with other examples as well. So you don't have to take money to see how the logic flows through this passage to get to the point of money. You could take another trial as well. You could, you could take the, the isolation and disruption of relationships that's been brought on by, by the coronavirus. So it's a trial that's hit everybody in this room. You, you, could, you could think that and, and walk through the same passages in this exact same way, the, the, the difficulty, the strain, the trial, the suffering that has been brought on through the isolation and disruption of relationships that we've had during this season. And James would look and he would say, listen, count it all joy when you face that. 
Because God is doing something in you. He's working through the trial. It doesn't mean you say coronavirus is good. It means that you say in the midst of that, I'm going to count it all joy, knowing that God is producing something in me. He's maturing me. He's, he's perfecting me in some way. He's growing me. He's building endurance that I might have hope and, and, and know that I'm on my, my way to heaven along with these other brothers and sisters. God is doing something in you through that. And if that's hard for you to understand how he's doing that, pray that God would give you wisdom to view coronavirus in that light. And, 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 and if you ask in faith, God will give that wisdom to you. But you, no matter who you are, we know that the glories of eternity will make the pains of this world pale by comparison. So I know that God is doing something in it and therefore I choose joy and desire God to mold me through it. And when I struggle in that way, I pray for wisdom so that I may fully and finally boast in my identity and who he is and who he says me to be, who, who I am in him. That's the logic here. And I think we could take any of our trials, any of our various struggles and just plug them right in to where he plugs wealth at the end of this and see the logic that he's walking through. We must fight for a God-centered perspective, even in our trials. No, especially in our trials. Count it all joy. If you lack wisdom, call out to God for it. And let the lowly boast in exaltation. Let the rich boast in humiliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your wisdom for all of us, even, even those of us who, who think we get this passage and think we have a handle on it. God, there'll be, there'll be times where we're prone to doubt. Maybe as we go through more intense things, there'll be times where we're prone to doubt. God, would you give all of us wisdom? Would you fill all of us with your spirit that we might endure, that we may stand firm under trials and under through pains and through difficulties and would you make us a, a people a church who would band together and help one another along to heaven as long as we have in this life may we encourage one another towards seeing our trials in this light counting them as joy and allowing steadfastness to do its work in us we thank you that you are molding us that even our trials aren't wasted by you but that you're using them to, to shape us and to perfect us and to complete us we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.